This podcast is from the RAND Corporation, a nonprofit institution that helps improve policy and decision-making through research and analysis. Visit www.rand.org to learn more about us and to explore RAND's free online library of more than 10,000 policy reports and commentaries. Welcome to the Albert P. Williams Lecture on Health Policy at RAND. Al Williams was a distinguished researcher and leader of the RAND Health Program. This lecture series was established through the generosity of Williams' friends and former colleagues to commemorate his legacy. This year's Williams lecturer is Leonard D. Schaefer. He is the Judge Robert McClay Whitney Chair and Professor at the University of Southern California and is a senior advisor to TPG Capital. Leonard was the founding chairman and CEO of WellPoint, the nation's largest health benefits company by membership. He served as administrator of the Healthcare Financing Administration, responsible for the U.S. Medicare and Medicaid programs. He was also the assistant secretary for management and budget of the Federal Department of Health and Human Services. He is a member of the RAND Health Board of Advisors and a member of the RAND Board of Trustees. And now, please join me in welcoming Leonard Schaefer. Thank you very much. Um, actually, I was invited uh, not by Michael, but by uh, Jeff Wasserman, who is the, he- uh, the current head of the uh, healthcare uh, part of RAND. And uh, when he invited me to give this talk, I, I told him I was extremely flattered, and I am. This is, this is the big time. But I was concerned that even though I've published papers and I've taught at major universities, uh, that I didn't think that my research was, frankly, of the caliber of uh, Al Williams. Um, now, Jeff jumped right in, and he quickly assured me he has read all of my published works, and he said not one of them is up to the standards of Al Williams. <laughs> He said that the reason I was being invited is that I've led large uh, financing and healthcare delivery programs at the state level, at the federal level, at the, in the not-for-profit sector, and in the for-profit world. And, according to Jeff, if I had stayed awake during some part of that, I ought to have some interesting observations to share with you tonight. So, while I think my mother would be very proud to know that I was invited to speak at RAND, I don't think she'd be thrilled to learn that I got the invitation because I couldn't hold a job. <laughs> I do want to, uh, I'm going to depart, <coughs> excuse me, from my prepared remarks because I want to make sure that people get value out of this tonight. I'm going to talk about health care, may or may not be worth your time. But when I came in, I was uh, uh, brought into this uh, uh, RAND um, web of getting ready for uh, this presentation. As you can see, it's belt and suspenders. There's a, there's a mic here, there's a mic here. This is, I'm going to do a little rock and roll stuff later. But <laughs> And so I want to share with you an insight about uh, public speaking. Uh, when you do a presentation, hopefully better than this one, A, you want to get there. I wrote this down because I don't want to miss any of this. You want to you get there early. You want to check your slides. Okay, you want to go to the bathroom, I hate to say that, and then you want to get mic'd up. Now, it's really important that you don't confuse that order. (laughs) 
If you want to write that down, it was worth coming tonight, right? <laughs> okay, um, I'd like to uh, begin with some observations uh, from two uh, very eminent uh, former uh, government officials. I was recently in Washington and heard Ben Bernanke, who was the former chairman of the Federal Reserve Board, describe the United States government as, and I quote, a very large health insurer that also has an army. <laughs> Think about it. <laughs> the irony, of course, is that we can afford the army, but increasingly we can't afford the cost of health care. It's the cost of health care that drives our accumulated national debt, which has become the major threat to our economy. Now, according to the Secretary, former Secretary of Defense Gates, this debt is now funded in large part by foreign governments, which has become a major national security issue. So, if we want to have a growing economy and we want to avoid national security problems, we have to control the cost of health care. Unfortunately, my message uh, is that this decade, like the rollout of the ACA, is going to be one of continuous and unpredictable change, and therefore any attempt to refigure, restructure, do all the right things that need to be done in healthcare is going to be very, very difficult. Um, that's the whole presentation. <laughs> so, uh, tonight we're going to talk about the challenges that face all healthcare systems, the ACA, some questions about the cost for our government, and then I'll describe the next decade, which, as I said, I will be one of continued uncertainty. And finally, there will be a big finish in which I will describe the decade after the next decade. I mean, it's my speech. I get to do what I want to do. And then we'll have questions and answers, and uh, people will denounce my uh, pro uh, projections. Okay, let's begin by reviewing the challenges that are faced by all healthcare systems. And uh, this is one of my uh, favorite slides, and when I use it in other contexts, uh, the point I make that uh, you're about to get in one slide a master's in healthcare policy. Wouldn't say that here at uh, RAND, but this is a master's degree. Okay, what are the challenges or what are the goals that all healthcare systems around the world uh, have? They are to do three things simultaneously to provide high quality care that's accessible to all of the people who live in that country at an affordable cost. That's what everybody wants to do. Now the problem is there are trade-offs, okay, and it's very difficult to do all three of these things. Now, the reason you get a master's degree in this is I'm going to explain to you in terms that you're going to grasp very quickly. There is a restaurant in Aspen, Colorado called Boogie's Diner. And those of you who are old enough to have seen a movie called Diner, there was a character named Boogie, and guess what? He's a real guy, and he's got a diner in, um, <laughs> in Aspen. Aren't you glad you came tonight? <laughs> okay, so it's about the size of, of this room, uh, maybe a little bigger, but much taller. And at the far end, there's a gigantic sign, and it says in huge letters, Our food is fast, cheap, and good. And then in very small letters in the bottom, it says, pick two. <laughs> you just got a master's degree in healthcare policy. You get to pick two out of those three. 
Now, in the United States, we didn't even care about that because we believed for a long time three things. Number one, we had the highest health, uh, quality of health care in the universe. didn't matter what anybody else was doing. High cost was perfectly okay because we're, we believe in a market economy and uh, good things cost a lot of money. And if that limits access, well, that's America. You know, you got a choice. You go to work. You make your money. You want to buy a car. You want to buy cigarettes. You want to buy health care. That's fine. And so what if it costs a lot of money? Um, guess what? We've discovered, and Rand has been very helpful in this, that the U.S. does not have the highest quality. In fact, it has very uneven quality and pretty rotten outcomes compared to other developed countries. We have the highest cost by far, by orders of magnitude. And in recent years, the combination of high costs and a bad economy has really limited access to care. Now, I'm going to talk in a minute about the, uh, the ACA, and it and some other things that have been happening have improved access to care, but our real problem in this country continues to be cost. Since 1970, healthcare spending is up an average of two and a half points more than the growth in the growth in the GDP. Uh, average premiums between 2000 and uh, 2012 uh, for employer-sponsored family coverage have gone up by 145 percent. Since 2008, health spending growth has slowed to below 4 percent a year, which sounds really good, except it's still growing, just not as fast. And the problem, which I'll describe in greater detail later, is that this drives accumulated deficits, and that is a big threat uh, to our economy. Now, there's a lot of talk about the recent slowing in health care costs, and that is true. We have seen it go down, not go down to less than the rate of GDP, but go down. And there's been a big debate over what has happened. And here's the most uh, uh, recent uh, data. Down, 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 bang. First quarter this year, 9.9%. Now, I don't think anybody knows what has happened, and I hope this won't continue, but this is very reminiscent of something that was called the Hillary effect uh, when the Clintons were thinking about uh, re, uh, reforming health care. That was the rate of increase in health care costs went down while everybody was worried about this new law. And when, then when everybody figured out that there wasn't going to be a new law, bang, everything went uh, back up. I hope that's not happening now. Been a lot of debate about what's going on. Intuitively, I think that the, the Kaiser analysis is probably pretty close. They said that, that about um, 77% of this decline was due to the decline in our economy, and about 23% was actually due to changes in the system. I'd be surprised if it's, if it's actually 23%. Uh, but this, this is BEA's new data. Uh, this is the biggest jump, quarterly jump, since 1980. So something's going on. I don't think anybody knows exactly uh, what it is. Um, let's see what else is happening, okay? Uh, this is a slide that uh, was put together in the last two days to highlight uh, the good work done by RAND and to bring in some other uh, stuff. I've never used this slide before, and I am never going to use it again. <laughs> yeah. So the good news is, according to three national surveys, including the RAND survey, that the uninsured rate in the United States is falling. According to RAND, it's down about 4.7 percentage points, or, or a decrease of about 9.3 million people. 
Now, it's interesting that this coverage increase is due primarily to increases in Medicaid and employer coverage. So it's not, it's not kind of what, what, what people uh, uh, were expecting. I find the Medicaid thing most interesting. Medicaid enrollment is up by about $6 million, and uh, one in five Americans is now covered by Medicaid. Think about that. Uh, according to the federal government, and some of these numbers, what, what it makes this difficult is some of these numbers uh, come from different points in time. So the most uh, recent data is from the federal government, and it says that the health insurance uh, enrollment, the, the enrollment on the health exchanges was about 8 million uh, people. Rand had an earlier, uh, smaller number earlier in time and found that only about a third of those people earlier in time had been um, uh, previously uninsured. Uh, so it isn't real sure what's going on other than the number of people who have coverage has gone up, the number of people uninsured has gone down. Uh, the reason it's difficult to, to uh, see what's going on is that the ACA, although it's a federal law, has really been implemented uh, as a 50-state science experiment. Um, all, these programs are all different. They range from uh, ineffective to innovative, uh, and it's bizarre to try to compare them or to come to conclusions that are national conclusions. Uh, 17 states have their own health exchanges. 27 are federally run. Seven are partnerships. I don't really know what that means. They have different prices, different benefits, uh, different one of the great important issues about healthcare is geography is destiny and the, the, the history of where different providers are located and where the populations are located determines how healthcare is delivered and that varies dramatically uh, by, by state. The benefits are also very uh, different and one of the most bizarre things that occurred by, by regulatory authority is the ACA calls for 10 essential health benefits Okay, it says every policy's got to have those 10 benefits. And then they said, oh, by the way, regulatorily, each state can figure out uh, what that means. So you have now different benefit structures in, in every state. And I'll talk a little bit about mandates, but the whole idea was to keep mandates out, and my guess is they're in most states. That is really inside baseball. Medicaid has been expanded in 27 uh, states, uh, D.C. probably. 19 states won't expand Medicaid. Five are engaged in, in debate. This creates an, a horrible anomaly, which is in, in the states that haven't expanded Medicaid, you can be real poor and get Medicaid, or you can be fairly poor and get subsidized health insurance, but if you're in the middle, you get nothing. So 4.8 million people are just kind of stuck, okay, which is, uh, was not the intention of the law. And as I mentioned, there are geographic differences. Um, so it's, it's kind of a... Uh, a a term I thought I'd never use out loud. It's a dog's breakfast. Okay. Um, the alleged good news is that these, uh, the potential of these changes and as some of these changes play out are moving uh, the healthcare system to change some of its organizational arrays and some of its behavior. Uh, and I think you can, you can play this depending upon your, your worldview however you want. Uh, either providers and insurers are scared to de death and trying crazy things, or uh, there are some really important things being done, or, and I think this is probably cl closer to the truth, there's a lot of experimentation going on, and hopefully some of this will work, some of it ain't going to work, 
and we'll have to see how it plays out. Providers are doing interesting things. Health plans are making changes. The government has got all kinds of programs going, and employers are doing interesting things, the most interesting of which is private health exchanges, which may come out of all this as uh, having a bigger impact than, uh, than some of the government stuff. So uh, with the ACA in full swing and the healthcare system experimenting with new models, um, what will the impact be on, uh, on healthcare costs? That's, uh, that's the question, if you remember, um, the uh, two former uh, government officials. Uh, to figure that out, we have to begin with uh, what's supposed to happen in the, in the legislation. And this is a very complicated uh, uh, piece of legislation. It is what is called a Christmas tree bill. You know, you, they had to put all kinds of stuff in it to get it passed. There was a less complicated, not really great bill uh, in the Senate, which is what everybody hoped would be passed. They couldn't get it through the House, and so they, it emerged looking like it emerged. So what's supposed to happen? First, the federal and state regulators successfully implement the health exchanges and Medicaid is expanded in every state. Uh, so far, not so much, right? I mean, that has not happened or even, or even close. There are a number of critical policy changes that are to be implemented. The, the, the one that's of most interest in terms of health care cost is something called IPAB is supposed to be created, and it's going to limit by law the growth of health care costs to whatever the growth in the GDP is plus 1%. Parenthetically, this has never been done before. Parenthetically, the Congress cut the budget of IPAB before it was created by $10 million. So, um, you know, is this going to happen? Another example, the out-of-pocket premium for paid by poor people, okay, who get subsidies is supposed to go up to slow the growth in the federal subsidies, okay? So think about whether that's going to happen. And another example is the Cadillac tax on uh, fulsome plans is supposed to be effective in 2018. I would think a lot of people, you probably don't know it, but a lot of people in this room have what are called Cadillac plans. And so there are going to be uh, taxes on those plans. And then it's going to be indexed uh, to the CPI. So is that going to happen? While all that's going on, uh, Medicare ACOs and demos are going to be successful. They're going to be expanded. Individuals and small businesses are going to get affordable insurance. This is an extremely complicated implementation. Everything has to go right. You do the calculus as, whether, as to whether you think uh, that's going to happen. And I am not knocking the people working on this. Uh, what I'm trying to say is this is complicated stuff and um, really hard to pull off. Now, it's important to understand that the reform unfolds incrementally. Before I go into the details of this, let me explain the Christmas colors. Uh, green is when there are increases in um, coverage. Red is when there's cost-cutting or what are supposed to be game-changing changes in the, in the healthcare system. Now, this, this incremental rollout uh, is very good if you're doing implementation. It is terrible politics. It is the worst thing you can do. Because what it does is it gives everybody a roadmap and a time sequence as to when the thing that they don't want to have happen is supposed to happen. Okay? So you get organized now to stop whatever is supposed to happen in 2016 or 2018 or whenever the hell it's supposed to happen. And do not kid yourself. There's an enormous amount of time, energy, and money being devoted to exactly those things. So 
for everything that is supposed to happen, there's some organization out there trying to make sure it won't happen or it'll happen uh, in, in a different way. This is a guarantee of continuous change because what's supposed to happen is a change, and preventing it or changing it from happening is a bigger change. And in this law, and I, I'm not a lawyer, there is the regulatory part of this law, the implementation through regulations, is more permissive than most laws. And we'll, we'll see in a minute, by regulatory authority, they've done some amazing things to this law. Actually, there's regulation that's literally inconsistent with the law as written, but that's how they're implementing the law. Now, this is just the beginning. Implementation of the financing mechanism also occurs over time, and when we're talking about money, we're talking about greater vulnerability uh, to change. This, this reform bill includes $515 billion in new revenues. That's the functional, uh, they're buried in it, 14 new tax increases. So as we sit here today, there are 14 organizations opposing those, uh, those uh, tax increases. At the same time, there are $716 billion in expense cuts. 80% of those are uh, cuts to uh, Medicare. Most of them reduce provider payments. Yet, okay, after $716 billion in cuts, the cost of Medicare goes up every single year on this chart. Okay, so we're cutting, but we're not reducing expenses. Now, just in passing, cutting Medicare violates the second law of American politics, and that is old people vote, poor people don't. You do not let that happen if you're an elected official because the first rule of American politics is get reelected. Okay, so query, are these things going to happen? And that's the question. All of this is supposed to happen. The question is, will it uh, happen, or uh, should we be skeptical? Now, I think we should, and I think the there are many reasons, but I think the first reason uh, has to do with uh, politics. And um, some of you will see this as being self-evident. Some of you will see this as not making any sense. But this is how healthcare politics work. Everybody wants to... Everybody thinks that controlling costs is probably a pretty good idea, right? But there is no organized political constituency for reducing health care costs. Every cost in our health care system is someone's income or someone's treatment, okay? So what providers, caregivers want is more revenue, more money, so they can do more good work, curing cancer, whatever it is they do. What consumers want is everything they or their family needs, and they want it right now because it's a legitimate health care need. What employers want is no complaints for their employees. What policymakers want, and I'm amused uh, to use that term, this is elected officials, is no controversy. They, they don't want to get in trouble over this, and they got in big trouble over it. Now, health care organizations tend to optimize at the local level, which means they suboptimize the system as a whole. So basically, there's no one responsible for the whole system, so no one benefits if the system improves in a financial sense unless their piece of the pie improves. So this is one of the, one of the reasons that we haven't really seen uh, meaningful cost containment or, or uh, well, we'll leave it at meaningful cost containment. That's healthcare politics. There's also a bunch of issues that economists are worried about. 
one of the issues has to do with uh, leverage in terms of, of uh, uh, prices. And there's a, a big literature, uh, economic literature, that uh, shows that uh, providers currently have leverage that helps them maintain or increase uh, their reimbursement. Traditionally, it's been physicians who, in, in years past, you know, threatened to leave Medicaid or threatened to leave Medicare. That isn't as big a, a, a lever as it used to be. But hospital consolidation has had a big impact on prices. Lots of work has been done. Paul Ginsburg did this great study that showed over 20 years all of the hospital consolidation in that 20-year period, every one of them, led to increases in prices and no improvement in efficiency or quality. Holy cow. Okay? Now, if you add to what's happening historically, the new law creates things called ACOs and, and inspires integrated provider systems, which for purposes of, of economists, and this slide is just more consolidation, you now have increased leverage in market power, which, which uh, may, may, may well lead to uh, higher prices, higher premiums, and more spending for Medicare and Medicaid. There's a lot of concern about this. This is a real issue. Uh, uh, Glenn Melnick, who is uh, affiliated uh, here, uh, did a study that confirmed all the earlier studies and pointed out that the, the number of consolidations per year is going up and has almost doubled uh, between 2009 and 2012. Another uh, issue of concern both to economists and actuaries is the people that are signing up for the health exchanges and whether we're going to get um, a, uh, a pool that is actuarially valid. Uh, these, these are some numbers that were put together a little bit earlier. And what they do is compare the percentage by age cohort of people who signed up to the, the, what the Kaiser says is their normal pool. And, you know, order of magnitude, the point here is that we're getting fewer young people, 18 to 34, uh, more older adults, and really troubling more older, older adults who cost, uh, who are, tend to be sicker, cost more money, and would lead if, if, uh, the, the prices were set based on the normal pool would lead to uh, uh, some rate shock uh, uh, later on. There are a bunch of other issues aren't worth going into that have to do with trend, with pent-up demand, uh, and the fact that there are a lot of non-compliant plans that are still around and people may have to move out of them. Uh, so the question is, are, are we going to get rate shock, uh, and is that going to cause problems later on? Uh, this concern about younger and healthier people uh, is hard to, hard to figure out, but something caught my eye about six months ago, which does not come anywhere near Rand's standards of, uh, of uh, research, but I found this fascinating. Uh, there is a, uh, a company that owns a fast food franchise called Popeyes, and um, they employ a lot of young people. And they, uh, I, it sounds to me, are extremely enlightened in that they offer a health insurance program to all of their employees that costs $2.50 uh, uh, a week or $130 uh, a, month, a year. And that is pretty cheap. Now, I, also, I assume it's a pretty crappy health insurance plan, but who knows? At least there's some coverage. So all of these kids, all these young people, you know, you're going to pay $2.50 a week to get health insurance. How many people signed up? 5%. Okay. Whoops. 5%. Okay. So um, five, only 5% would pay $130 a year. Uh, 
How many people are going to pay $1,200 a year for real health insurance? Because the penalty is $95 a year in 2014. So if you're a young person, okay, you do the math, okay? You I mean, you, you assume, of course, you're not going to be ill. And oddly enough, you know, if you're uh, under 22 or, or, or 24 and you don't ride a motorcycle, you probably aren't going to, uh, you may not need uh, health insurance in any given year. So query, uh, are they going to sign up? I, uh, I don't know, but I thought that was a fascinating uh, statistics. And my, my hat's off to Popeyes, and I wonder who the hell works there. Okay, so uh, the question is, what does the future look like? And I think it's a, a continued um, uncertainty. Um, this 10-year rollout results in uh, time-specific targets for change. And I want to use that word carefully. Time-specific change, and then those changes become targets for other people to change them. So I think the ACA is the beginning of a decade of continuous change. Sophisticated stakeholders are going to build support for their particular narrow self-interested changes. And it won't be that we're, we're against uh, health care. It'll be that for small employers, filling out this form for every time they spend more than $600 is a waste of their time and is, and is inappropriate bureaucratic interference. So let's repeal that, which the Congress did before uh, the law went into effect, okay? So there'll be lots of new bills, lots of waivers, lots of piecemeal changes and replacements to provisions and continued variation among, among states. There's also going to be a phenomenon that, that we've seen in healthcare quite a bit in the past, which is unintended consequences from these narrowly focused changes that interact with the, com the co complex and interrelated provisions and the reality of the healthcare marketplace that result in things that nobody wanted to have happen but kind of did. And then what do we do about that? So we're going to have 10 years of uh, operational and legislative uncertainty. Now, what I find uh, very interesting uh, is that that's exactly what the public wants. Most Americans don't like the Affordable Care Act, but only a minority want it repealed. Most people want it changed and tweaked, and that is what's happening. We are changing and tweaking it. And if you're a user of health care or you're a potential user of health care, that, that may actually uh, be the right uh, thing to do. But if you're part of the financing or health care delivery system, uh, it's pretty scary. Now, this is what the people want, and although many of us are concerned about the dysfunctions uh, or dysfunctional government, in regard to the ACA, um, the administration, Congress, and the, and the Supreme Court have been doing a fine job of implementing the public's will. <laughs> there have been 41 meaningful changes to the uh, ACA uh, to date. And let me start with my favorite, the Supremes, okay? Uh, in an attempt to get the ACA, uh, you know, thrown out, uh, a case was taken to the Supreme Court to, to basically say that uh, the individual mandate was uh, uh, unconstitutional, in, uh, unethical, and un-American. And the Supreme Court, in its wisdom, said, oh, that's perfectly fine. The issue is that the, the mandated expansion of Medicaid 
is, is not constitutional. So now we have this business of a little more than half the states expanding Medicaid and the others not. Now, there's more to come from the Supreme Court. These guys do not mess around. There are two cases pending that could have an enormous effect uh, on, on the implementation of the law. The first is testing the notion or the question, can companies uh, or organizations uh, reflect their religious preferences in their health insurance? Okay, that is being tested before the Supreme Court. And a much bigger one and a much more unusual case is an attempt to prove that federal exchanges, by virtue of being run by the federal government, are inherently unconstitutional. And uh, I know some lawyers who think that's a better case than the first one. I have no idea, but it's going to be fun to watch. Now, if you like the Supreme Court, okay, um, you 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 got to love uh, the administration. Um, they um, have done a, a, a number of things that I find fascinating. Uh, this issue of, um, you know, are you eligible for subsidies is based on a verification of income, which has been officially delayed. So you get a subsidy, but there is no, no immediate verification of income. The individual mandate has been delayed. The um, insurers can remember, if you have a plan, you like it, you can keep it. Oh, no, you can't keep it. Well, now, yes, you can keep it, Okay. Clearly, law says you can't. Regulation uh, says you can't. The non-compliant health plans, which under the law are illegal, are uh, going to be offered for the next two years. Uh, the employer mandate has been delayed a year. And as I mentioned, essential health benefits are being defined at the state level. Th these are very significant changes, and many of them came as a complete surprise, even to the organizations that asked for them. Okay? They were not ready. Uh, for, for what happened. Now, Congress doesn't want to be left in the lurch, so they've done a few things, like eliminating the public health fund. Uh, they also uh, eliminated caps on deductibles for small group insurance. They eliminated the CLASS Act, which was federal long-term care insurance. Thank you very much. That, that went out the window. Uh, and um, as I mentioned, they eliminated that mandate uh, for small businesses to report on 1099s. So the point is, uh, there have been an enormous number of changes, many of them unexpected, many of them inconsistent both with the spirit of the law and the rest of the law. However, let's go back to uh, former Chairman Bernanke's concerns about uh, cost. Uh, this is, uh, uh, well, there are lots of issues about projecting the cost of the ACA. This is a projection of total U.S. healthcare expenditures as a percent of the GDP. And I'm now shifting the discussion uh, from the ACA uh, uh, to the American economy. And uh, basically what it says is uh, that by 2020, uh, and we're pretty close now, uh, total healthcare expenditures in the United States uh, will be 18% uh, of the GDP. That's up over three times uh, since 1960. By 2038, it goes to almost a fourth of the American economy. Now, the rate of increase is slowing in, in 2014, but between 2015 and 2022, according to CBO, we're talking about total health care expenditures, um, it's supposed to go up by over 6% a year. Okay, so we still have a, a, a cost problem. Now, a case can be made, if, if you're uh, detail-oriented, that uh, this is an underestimate because it's based on what's called current law. 
It assumes the law as written will be implemented, which I hope I've demonstrated ain't going to happen. It uh, uh, assumes that the SGR, which is a way of paying doctors and Medicare, is going to be implemented as, as written, which called for a cut every year, which the Congress has overridden every year. Uh, it assumes that the IPAB G GDP plus one works, which ain't going to happen. Well, maybe could happen. And that there'll be no increase in the costs of subsidies, which is highly unlikely. So I think you can make a case uh, that this number is going to be higher uh, than it looks. The important point is not what that number is. The important point is that health care drives the accumulated federal debt. And I want to get back to Chairman Bernanke. The yellow is everything the federal government does, with the exception of Social Security, health care, and interest on the debt. And uh, these are CBO uh, numbers. And what, what it says, basically, is as a percent of GDP, it's going to go down. We can afford, I hate to say this out loud, the wars and the other things we do. Okay? Social Security goes up. But it comes from a large base. So on a percentage basis, it isn't going up as higher as the other stuff, as quickly as the other stuff. And we could solve this problem if we wanted to. Remember the second law of American politics? Old people vote. So don't, don't, don't hold your breath. Net, net uh, interest on the debt is what goes up most dramatically, but it's a small number, okay, relatively small number that grows. But the biggest number, okay, the one that dwarfs everything, uh, by 2038, is health care programs. Okay? Uh, and the issue here is, well, by 2024, parenthetically, spending on Social Security and health care will be 53% of federal expenditures. Okay? So <laughs> the chairman was, uh, was right. The issue here is um, the impact uh, on our economy. And according to the CBO, this does bad things. Not an annual deficit. I'm not arguing against that. And most economists think a 3% deficit is okay and good, bad years a little worse. Good years, it's a lot better. This, that's not the issue. The issue here is the accumulated federal debt, which is now over 70% of the GDP, is how much money we owe. And it does four bad things. First, it crowds out investment, which is bad for the economy. Second, it leads to higher interest payments uh, for, for everybody. It reduces the ability to borrow, and it increases the chances of a sudden fiscal crisis, not a good thing for the home team. Okay? But the way this debt is financed is the big change, and this is why Secretary Gates is concerned. Um, in 1970, our debt was $283 billion, and about 5% of it was held by non-American uh, interests. By 1980, it had grown to 2.4 trillion and 19 percent, and in 2012, unbelievably, 11.3 trillion dollars in debt, almost half um, held by uh, foreign entities. Now, why is this a military concern? And I really hesitate to do this in front of this crowd because uh, everybody at Rand here knows a lot more about military stuff than I do. But here's the story. And the story has to do with the Suez Canal in the 1950s. The French and the um, English decide they want to invade the Suez Canal to open it up so they get more um, oil. Perfectly straightforward uh, colonialism. And, and they come to uh, talk to uh, President Eisenhower, and he says, no, we don't do that kind of thing. We're not going to do it. Uh, 
They do it anyhow. Ike gets pissed off. Uh, he has the Secretary of State call the Prime Minister uh, of the UK and ask one question. Who buys your debt? Remember, this is post-World War II. The entire recovery is a function of American investment in Europe. The answer, of course, is why you do. And then the Secretary of State says, and if you guys aren't out of Suez in the next two days, we're going to stop buying your bonds. They left. Okay? Now, you look at, at who owns the U.S. Uh, uh, debt. The two largest holders are China and Japan. If you've been reading the newspaper, those guys are in some big fight over some rocks. You know, in the ocean. They ain't kidding around. I mean, they got guns out there. They got boats. They are serious about that. And sooner or later, the military, the national security issue is what if one of them says, okay, Uncle Sam, whose side are you on? And whatever the answer is, the other guy stops buying our debt, and we are in deep trouble. So this is a really serious national security issue. Okay, time for the big finish, right? The ACA uh, leads to this 10 years of constant change. It has problems, but it's probably here to stay, in my opinion, for a couple of reasons. Um, there are millions of people that are receiving benefits, and it's very hard to take those benefits away. You'd be surprised at how many people will eventually get subsidies. And there are a lot of stakeholders, a lot of people involved in the healthcare financing delivery who are, who are making money from this, and it's very hard to take that away. And there isn't an attractive alternative on the table. What, what do we do if we don't do this? I mean, there's nothing, there's nothing out there. So the, the notion of uh, repealing it is giving way to uh, discussions about how we should amend it. And as I showed you early, 49% of Americans, according to CNN in early May, want that to happen. Let's, let's fix it. I think, however, that we should be prepared, particularly if you're interested in policy, for endless arguments about reforming the reform of the reform. Okay? It is going to be a moving target. There's going to be a lot of kerfuffle, uh, you know, query wh whether we get uh, anything. Uh, <laughs> well, well, we'll get some things done. It'll just take us a while. Um, as I mentioned earlier, I think the ACA is changing the, the, the policy in the healthcare uh, landscape. But, but the critical issue, and there is not time to go into it tonight, is that the combination of the aging of America and the coverage expansion, the number of people who are being covered and the kind of benefit packages they're getting, uh, without reforming how we deliver care, will lead to much higher deficits, much higher debt, uh, more legislative uh, change, more chaos, and not good for the home team. So the challenge is to determine what to keep, what to change, what additional forms are ready, and what's required to improve quality and control costs in what I call a coherent manner. And by that I mean we've got to redesign both our healthcare delivery and our financing system. Now, we're just about to run out of time because I want to escape having to say how to do it. But I have a three-point plan, okay? And I will give you the points, and then when we go to Q&A, somebody can decide where they want to talk about it. I think we have to do three things. We have to demedicalize wellness and prevention. That is to say, take it away from doctors and hospitals and all the expensive stuff around it and take responsibility for it. We've got to change what we pay for and how we pay for it, and we can talk about that. 
and we have to allow individuals, not doctors, to decide how and where they are going to die. Now, that may not happen, because I've had this three-point plan for a while, and so far nobody has been uh, willing to put it into law. So what's going to happen in the long term? And uh, remember what Churchill said, Americans always do the right thing, but only after trying everything else. <laughs> and I think that's what we're about to see. We will go through 10 years of, uh, of, of chaos, and we will end up with a vaguely American healthcare system. Now, if you go around the world and you look at healthcare systems, it used to be that they varied based on what was called technology diffusion. So if you lived in a developed country, you got a high tech. If you lived in an undeveloped country, you got bad tech, and that was the difference in healthcare systems. Well, technology diffuses over the internet instantaneously. That ain't a problem anymore. So the second thing was, okay, if it's not technology diffusion, it's economics. You got to be a rich company, a rich country to have a good, good healthcare system. Poor have bad healthcare systems. We're the poster boys for being rich and being not so good. So that doesn't work. If you look at these systems, what you find is healthcare systems don't reflect much about healthcare. They reflect the social values in the countries in which they exist. And those values differ significantly around the world. Our country has a set of social values that are at variance with most developed countries. We are the only country that left healthcare in the market economy. We believe in a market. We also believe, as Jefferson said, that government that governs best governs least. So we don't want the government to control it. But if you look carefully at our free enterprise system, it's pretty heavily regulated. So what I think is going to happen is, and we'll see this, the first thing pretty quickly, is insurance companies will become heavily regulated utilities. Okay? They'll still be private, but the good old days are over. I retired, so like I care. Okay? Uh, Providers will become more, more integrated, but also more regulated, both financially and in terms of quality and in terms of access. The state and federal governments will both regulate uh, both providers and insurers, which will make everybody's life miserable. But the federal government will become the major player, not single payer. Okay, the major payer, I'm sorry, not single payer. Single payer is un-American. The major payer, that's okay. Okay? And think about one in five Americans on Medicaid. How many people on Medicare? It's going to be the federal government acting through uh, privately held insurance companies and privately held delivery systems. I think research and training is going to have to be funded separately from uh, uh, care delivery. And the big change for patients is going to be there. They will have to act more like consumers. And not so much, I, I'm not a big believer in the economist thing where, you know, uh, patients are going are gonna, to uh, make uh, informed financial decisions, but they're going to have to make more of the decisions for themselves that doctors used to make for them. And I, there was a really good uh, article in the New York Times about this. There, there is a movement. Doctors are realizing they <laughs> are not uh, omnipotent, and there is going to be uh, uh, combined decision-making. And then finally, there'll be IT platforms, and there'll be all kinds of data. Uh, but, so the question was, what happens when the dust settles? This is what I think is going to happen, but this is America, and the dust never settles. So, in conclusion, I think this whole ACA thing is a great opportunity for RAND. <laughs> 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 
Got to be a silver lining, right? <laughs> Rand is very well positioned to help shape the policy agenda, to influence the debate, and to design effective policy solutions, and they should go forth and do it. Remember to the three-point point Schaefer plan. Thank you very much. Uh, we're going to open up now to uh, qu uh, questions from the audience. So if you have a question, uh, please raise your hand, and either uh, myself or my colleague will come find you. All right. Over here, it looks like. Thanks for a nice talk. A uh, question about the, um, the cuts to Medicare. You mentioned that that might be a potential source of, uh, of political pressure on the ACA. But aren't the cuts really virtually invisible to the Medicare beneficiary because they're basically hospital cuts and uh, they're gonna, the, the beneficiaries are still going to be getting basically the same benefits or the Medicare Advantage cuts. And even with the cuts, Medicare Advantage is still a really good benefit for, for the 20% that are on it. So, and if you're thinking about it from a public policy perspective, if you're uh, putting a lot more people into the system through the commercial system, if you're the government, at your expense, doesn't it make sense when the hospitals aren't incurring those or, or have more reimbursement, less unreimbursed care, to take some of that money back through somehow? And taking uh, Medicare hospital cuts is a way to sort of recycle that money and to subsidize the rest of the system. So one, do you think there's really any potential for political pressure? And two, where, what else can you really do to help subsidize the people who are getting insured? Well, you know, if you're asking me if hospitals are going to willingly give anything back to, to anybody, the answer is no. But I think the issue, the political issue is the, is the one that you're raising, which is appropriate. The complexity of the cuts is relatively invisible, but the political issue is there is a, um, a, a scandal over the fact that somebody doesn't get what they thought they wanted to get at a local hospital. The local hospital does not say, gee, we made a mistake. The local hospital said, says, you know, if we were adequately reimbursed like we used to be, that wouldn't have happened, okay? And everybody writes letters to their congressman, and as I tried to point out, they don't repeal everything, but they put money back in uh, for radiation therapy, or they put money back in uh, so there are more uh, chairs in the, in the waiting room. I mean, literally. Uh, that That's what will happen. Uh, and... Um, I, I don't think either the, the revenues or the cuts uh, are going to happen as planned. I, I, I think they will be uh, tweaked in, in any number of ways. It also depends whose ox gets gored, you know, as to, as to how, the, how and where the comeback uh, will be. Um, you know, the hospitals are extremely politically powerful, but it has nothing to do with health care. They're powerful for two reasons. They are almost always the largest employer in the, uh, in the area, and they are huge sources of community pride. And, and you do not screw up the local hospital, which we're all so proud of, and you do not have the local hospital say, because of what the guys and ladies in Washington did, we're going to lay off uh, 600 people. You don't, you don't get away with that. Closing a hospital is harder to do than closing a military base. And you're looking at the guy who knows it. I tried to close... Brooklyn Jewish Hospital, <laughs> which not only didn't close, but merged with St. Mary's. <laughs> Thank you very much. All me. We have a question in the back. 
there are some differences between health policy and health politics. How well do you think Rand is positioned to deal with the latter? Boy, that's a, that's a really good question. Uh, I, I think Rand is very well positioned to deal with the former. does a very good job on, on, uh, on health policy. Uh, health politics is a very, very different animal. I, I, I don't know if I, if I uh, mentioned, but, but a point I try to make uh, is that the, the legislative process surrounding health care legislation, the debate, has nothing to do with health care. What we argue over in this country are three things, okay? We argue over the role of government. That's the fundamental issue when we're talking about uh, federal or state uh, health uh, legislation. Then we argue over the cost, and we get very confused over whose cost we're talking about. Is it an individual's cost? Is it the government cost? But cost becomes very important. And then we, we argue over social and religious values. Okay, you know, why a change to Medicare should bring out a speech about, you know, abortion, I don't know, but it does, okay? So the, the politics are typically nowhere near as well aligned with the policy issues as, as you would think. Also, we have, a, we have a small problem in terms of our representatives in, in Washington and their grasp of, uh, of some of these issues. When I was in government, uh, I, I, I was running what was then called HICFA, which is Healthcare Financing Administration, and uh, and uh, that uh, was Medicare and Medicaid. And all my shirts had uh, little notations on the on the, the the cuff, and it said Part A is doctors, uh, Part B is hospitals. So was the okay uh, for Medicare. Never met a member of Congress who knew that. So, I mean, the, the policy debates are not about policy. And the question is whether, whether Rand wants to get involved in it. Now, I know Michael is very big on impact, and I, th I think uh, Rand is being impactful. But, uh, you know, this is about making sausage many times, and I don't know that Rand wants to even be in the room for some of these things. What, what they can do, though, is shape the, help shape the agenda and influence the public debate and try to get people to focus on real policy as opposed to uh, the politics. Very hard to do. So we, have a, we probably only have a time for one or two more questions. So we have a question right here. Thank you so much for a very RAND type uh, presentation. <laughs> um, ruthlessly objective, right? <laughs> ruthlessly. <laughs> and I hate to bring uh, your 30,000 foot uh, level uh, discussion down to something so specific, but I did read in the LA Times uh, a couple of weeks ago about uh, what they called uh, Obama's quiet uh, expansion of the Obamacare, in that they said somewhere hidden in the thousands of pages of regulations was a guarantee to the insurance companies that if they didn't make enough money, that the Obama administration would uh, fund them that money. and. I just wondered if that was real. It's not hidden at all. Is that real? No, it's not hidden, yeah. There, there are, it, it's the three R's. It's uh, reinsurance. Uh, well, it's not hidden at all. The problem is it sunsets in 2016. So nobody is going to lose money in 2014 or 15. But after 2016, uh, they're, they're on their own. 
But, yeah, it's not hidden. It's uh, In order to get the insurance companies to play, they had to guarantee that nobody would get badly hurt, basically. This is a Christmas tree bill. For everything they wanted to do, there was a cost. And for whatever reason, I want to be careful how I say this, the, the administration, you know, they, they, they let the deals be cut. The, the lesson of the Clinton administration was allegedly you can't design this thing in the basement of the White House and expect the Congress to adopt it. So what the Obama administration said was, okay, Congress, you figure it out. And the way the Congress works is, you know, they're quid pro quos for everything. But for the next uh, uh, two years, or for this year and next year, uh, insurance companies, are, if they lose money on paper, they get, they get uh, bailed out, basically. It's more complicated than that, but that's fair enough. But it sunsets in 2016. And my question is, do you think they're going to let that happen? <laughs> we have time for one last audience question here in the back. Uh, I'd like to, to uh, get into the weeds a little bit and give you uh, just take a moment to, to tell you a little bit about an experience that I had. In the uh, mid-1990s, my sister, um, who was totally uninsured, uh, got seriously ill spent the last six months of her life in, uh, in a hospital. Uh, I don't know who paid the bill. I certainly didn't. Uh, and I was responsible for making all of her health care decisions, which I was totally incapable of doing because of the emotional impact of all of that. I'm also told that in the last six months of anybody's life, that's where they accrue the most health care expenditures. Um, do you see in the next 10, 15, 20 years having those decisions removed from the individual, uh, from the family, and, uh, and made in a more rational way? Well, uh, the third point in the Schaefer three-point solution uh, is, is to change uh, the, the conditions under which individuals die. And uh, there's been a lot of uh, research around both the cost impact uh, and the, the uh, actual the reality of the last year of life. And uh, I'm on an uh, IOM panel that's about to issue, one hopes, in the next three or four weeks, a report on this. So I have to be careful about uh, not speaking for IOM. But um, I think there are going to be very big changes uh, in, in end-of-life care. But there are, uh, it is fraught with, uh, with a bunch of, uh, of complexities. Uh, the, the first is knowing when you're, well, from the cost point of view, the most expensive year of life, full stop, is the last year of life. Okay? Second, uh, there's very good research that shows that the more um, medical interventions at, during the last year of life, the higher the cost, the lower the family satisfaction, the lower the patient satisfaction, and the quicker the patient dies. Everything is, everything is wrong uh, about that. Okay? Uh, now, the, the question is, you know, what, what should be done? And uh, the, 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 the current thinking is that uh, people should be able to make decisions for themselves and that those decisions should be documented uh, first in a sometimes called a living will or an advanced directive, and uh, second that um, there be a um, surrogate decision maker appointed. Uh, 
because the the irony is that the that the living wills typically do not cover the questions that come up at the end of life. And um, uh, second, 80% of the time, the patient is not competent to make the decision. That's, that's what you found. So the notion is uh, there should be family discussions around these issues much earlier and much before people become uh, seriously ill. Now, the medical difficulty is that it's very hard to tell when someone is at the end of their life. To get into a hospice and have Medicare cover hospice care, a doctor has to sign a document that says, in, in my opinion, this patient uh, will die in the next six months. Doctors hate to do that. First, it's an admission of defeat. I mean, I went to school for 23 years to say this person's going to die. No, goddammit. I'm going to save this person. And second, they're lousy at it. Okay? They're, they're very bad at, at estimating who's going to die when. Now, ironically, and this is a Leonard Schaefer throwaway piece of, of, uh, of research, but it's valid. If you change, if you change the, uh, the question from will this patient die in six months to would, doctor, would you be surprised if your patient died in six months? Two things happen. One, doctors are very willing uh, to give an answer, and two, the accuracy skyrockets. The problem is the federal government is not about to pay for an insurance benefit because some doc wouldn't be surprised. <laughs> well, I mean, think about it and, and think about government. Anyhow, so the, 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 the challenge is who wants what at end of life and how to get people to think about this early enough so they can communicate with a surrogate decision maker. And one of the things that uh, uh, is true about our healthcare system is physicians are very poorly trained to elicit from patients these kinds of, of responses. You know, have you thought about this? What do you want to do? Because that's kind of awkward for a doctor uh, to do when they're, well, not poor, they're terrible at it. Um, and um, families uh, do not like having that conversation. Now, the good news is that in 2000, I think, it, I think the number is, and I may have the numbers a little wrong, 42% of what they called older Americans, and I don't know who that is because I'm not an older American, but I <laughs> think I'm included, 42% had living wills. As of 2010, it, 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 it grew to like 72%. So what I think is happening is a very long-winded answer. What I think is happening is the baby boomers are seeing their parents die, and are deciding they don't want to have that happen to themselves. And particularly what they don't want, I don't mean to project onto, you, onto your story, but a very bad place to die unless you want it is an intensive care unit in a hospital because their goal, and they're good at it, is to keep you alive. And the issue is not quality of life. The issue is to keep you alive and to keep intervening, which goes back to what I said earlier, more interventions, higher cost, lower satisfaction, quicker death. It ain't a great place to be. So um, you, you, you want to have the conversation so it's known that you don't want to go to an intensive care unit. And uh, ironically, um, well, so you want to have those discussions. You have to have the legal documents. You have to have a, uh, not have to, you want to have a living will. You want to have a surrogate decision maker. You want to have family discussions. And you want to be able to relate to doctors in a way that it's okay with them, for them to tell you 
the, the truth about the, the, the impact of what they might recommend. There, there's, uh, uh, there was a New York Times uh, set of articles called How Doctors Die. They do not die the way people die. They don't let what happened, uh, they, they, don't, they, they don't end up in intensive care unless they want to. Now, there are, there are personal views and then there are religious views and um, the, the goal of um, uh, having an appropriate end-of-life treatment is it has got to respect what different people want. So if you want everything done and you want to be in an intensive, uh, you know, an ICU and have everything done, then fine. But if you don't, and this is my point about baby boomers, uh, many of them don't want that to happen because they see what happened to their parents. The other thing is that there's a, a new specialty called palliative care, and palliative care is about keeping people comfortable, okay, which is different uh, from curative, although you can do both palliative and curative. Uh, and as that gets more respect and that gets uh, uh, more widely known, uh, people may well, in, at the in the end of life, uh, choose those comfort as opposed to interventions. And uh, oddly enough, that's a le much less expensive death, and there are quality of life issues that you know, we all have to deal with. Um, I'm beginning to sound like a uh, minister, so I'm going to stop. <laughs> Thank you all very much. Thank you. This presentation is provided as a public service by the RAND Corporation. To learn how you can attend programs at RAND, visit us online at www.rand.org events.